Hey, everyone. So just a shout out for our sponsor, Picture House in the Small Dark Room. They've been an incredible partner for us this um, season for the podcast. And we're just so grateful to have them. And not just because they're sponsoring, but because we really love those guys. And yeah. we're actually doing a lot of stuff with them that we'll announce later, things that have to do with some programs the foundation is going to launch. So it's it's really gone from just sponsoring the podcast to a much deeper relationship. And I think that just says a lot about their values, how supportive they are of the foundation, of the PhotoWork Foundation, and, and how much they want to help out. And as everyone knows, I, I've been over there a lot to discuss things with them, and I have artists who print with them, work on various post projects with them. And it's it just everyone loves hanging out over there. At the lab, It's you say lab, it sounds so sterile, but it's like this really cool space. It's on a number of floors and in Chelsea in New York. Yeah, they call it their studio. Right. And they, they're an incredible resource. It's a film lab. They do scanning, printing, retouching. They sell film. And of course, the book. they have a bookstore with live events. Uh, and they have a mini lab where you can have prints made of all different sizes. Love the mini yeah. lab. <laughs> <laughs> they are Picture House in the Small Dark Room. Their website is ph. T-S-D-R for Picture House, the Small Darkroom, dot com. And so is their Instagram, P-H-T-S-D-R. Uh, and you can check out the Instagram or the website to see if they're having specials or what's going on at the bookstore. And again, it's, it's an incredible place to have in New York. And you don't have to be in New York. You know, you can send them in film, mm -hmm. start a relationship with those guys. They will take care of you. I promise. That's who they are. They are That's really right. committed to, to doing a great job for everyone, whoever you are, whether you're a big shot or a small <laughs> shot. So, um, <laughs> so check them out. Absolutely. All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book. It just seems so silly saying that at this point. I've got to say, Michael doesn't know that I was about to throw a wrench into the works from the very beginning there, but... Um, I'm holding on tight. <laughs> I don't know. Let me just see if there's something else here. Hello, and welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely podcast about photography. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sasha Wolf. This, this, this is what meetings are for. <laughs> Listen, you're not feeling well. I didn't want to burden you. Oh, thanks. I, I think the audience appreciates being in on the uh, on the, the planning spot. stages. <laughs> planning? Who's planning? <laughs> on the non-planning. Yeah, I'm recording from Woodstock, New York, on a um, rainy, soggy fall day, but I love it. Um, and I'm joined, as usual, by the man you just heard, my fellow traveler, mm -hmm. a little under the weather, is he? Uh, mm -hmm. Mr. Michael feels like shit, Chauvin <laughs> Dalton. Hello, yes, Michael. Hello. Oh, hi. Yeah, yeah. Getting uh, getting better, but uh, I actually tested positive for COVID for the first time. Uh, and uh, yeah. I thought it was your here. second time, no? Well... I I was sick in March 2020 after coming back from Houston, and they didn't have tests. 
I'm sh- pretty sure that's what it was, but it's my it's that's why I said I tested positive for the first time. Yes. Ah, okay, yeah. You're so you're, you are a, a very uh, precise individual, unlike me. I think the audience, by the way, has already figured that out. <laughs> oh boy, let me just say that you know I. <laughs> I say I haven't had COVID yet. I've never tested positive for COVID. I've Mm. never thought I had COVID. And I have a few friends, though. If I say that around them, they're so offended. And I get either... It's like different degrees (laughs) of snark. I either get... I either get the sort of quiet, gentle shiv of of not that you know of. Okay, that's one... (laughs) Right. One response. And then the snarkier one that I get with regularity is, oh, yeah, because you have the world's best immune system. (laughs) And I'm like, look, all I said was, I mean, anyway, no no winning there. But I'm really sorry that you're. You're so under the weather. And oh, thanks. I'm, I'm actually hitting uh, yeah, day six better. tomorrow, yeah. which is the end of isolation. I I did a, a critique today where I was on Zoom and all the students were in the classroom. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was quite, quite hysterical. <laughs> I was being wheeled around on a on a light stand. <laughs> oh my god, that's that is fantastic. <laughs> yes. Were they drinking and smoking while that's you right. were? Uh. <laughs> so hi hi we had a great trip to atlanta it was so wonderful to good. be with you in another was, state you too uh-huh. yeah it was really a lot of fun i mean uh, educational fun productive uh, everything mm-hmm. you can ask for yes yep yep so we recorded three episodes while we were down there mm-hmm. um the one today which is with the curator of photography at the High Museum of Art, Gregory Harris. And he was in conversation with me and, (laughs) but mostly with Raheem Fortune, who is involved and we'll talk about it during the episode. So I'm not going to get into it now, but is involved with this exhibition. That was the occasion of why we, why we went down this incredible exhibition um, that we'll also talk about on the episode that just opened at the High and then while we were there, we took advantage of being in Atlanta to bring in Irina Rozovsky, yeah. uh, very close to Atlanta in Athens, Georgia, where she lives with her husband, Mark Steinmetz, and their daughter, and runs a great uh, organization called The Human and is a great photographer. So we talked to Irina, and then we had a great conversation with the premiere, um, <laughs> or just to be, I guess, fair, I'll say, and non-biased, one of the premier photo dealers, gallerists yes, in the South, if not in the country. I mean, really an incredible Anna Walker-Skillman who runs Jackson Fine Art. And so we have a great episode with her uh, for the perspective, talking about photography from a gallerist perspective. So... A really good trip. It was so exciting uh, meeting all. The, I mean, I knew I know Arena and I've met Raheem, and but uh, just seeing everyone in person, it was just such a thrill. Thank we, you we for wanted uh, to bringing eat. me along. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I think we wanted to eat more good Southern food, but we yeah. were both exhausted at the end we of were. every day we were there, so we <laughs> both collapsed. Um, anyway, well, this is a really wonderful episode, so we'll go on the long side. So I think we'll, let's just get to it. Why don't we? And it, it gets in in a way that I think the audience will be able to. It doesn't need any uh, 
context from us, right? I think we can just get to it. I mean, I think all we need to say is to, if you can, get down to the high to see this fantastic show, uh, a long arc photography in the American South since 1845, which is what we'll also talk about in this episode, because it's, I think it's going to be one for the books. I think it's going to be a, yeah, a show I we'll agree. be talking about for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, yep. I agree. And the show is going to travel, but Atlanta's a really fun city that I know from prior trips has great food, even though <laughs> I was mostly in my hotel room at night um, recuperating <laughs> All right, on so this one. <laughs> Virginia Museum of Fine Art, we'll, we'll have to go down there and, and, and eat. And then also at the... Uh, at the Addison in Andover, yeah. Phillips Academy. So yep. northeast of Virginia, it's at the high now into January. So... Worth seeing. Okay, Michael, if you don't mind, please get better and take it away. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. And here is your conversation with Greg Harris and Raheem Fortune. Gregory Harris, Raheem Fortune, welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast. For our listeners, we're actually all together, which is wonderful, including Mr. Michael Chauvin Dalton. Hello. Um, <laughs> Where's Peanut this time? <laughs> oh, God, don't. Don't bring up <laughs> Peanut. I have mother's guilt. Um, so we are in a room at the wonderful High Museum in Atlanta, I was originally coming down to see, I told Michael I was coming down to see this exhibition along arc photography in the American South since 1945 that my guest Greg Harris and his co-curator Sarah Kennel curated um, because a number of my artists are in the exhibition. I would have come down to see it anyway because it's right in my happy wheelhouse. Raheem wound up contributing an essay to the incredible book that Aperture made of the show. Anyway, we realized that this would be a really great opportunity to talk with Greg and Raheem together. Last night, they did a talk at the High Museum that was just absolutely wonderful. So happy to, to be here for that. And we'll be doing some other podcasts, taking advantage of the fact that we're in Atlanta. But let's get started um, now. So Greg and Raheem, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sasha. Yes. Thank you, Sasha. It's great to see you both. Michael, great to see you. So we'll start with short bios because I think there's a lot. First of all, you've both been on the uh, podcast before, but there's a lot to get into. So Greg, why don't you start and just tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm the photography curator here at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. Um, I've been working in museums for close to 20 years. I started out when I was in college working at the Museum of Contemporary Photography in Chicago, which is a fantastic place that uh, you know employs a lot of students and gives people a lot of hands-on opportunities. And I kind of caught the curatorial bug when I was there. And then I uh, moved up the street to the Art Institute of Chicago and was working in the photography department there for a number of years in various roles from being a curatorial assistant. And I was an installer and just kind of got to see how the inner workings of a museum really function. And then I spent six years at a small art museum at DePaul University, also in Chicago, it wasn't a photography-specific museum, but I tended to focus on photography projects, often around contemporary practice and interests of you know, documentary, different notions of documentary, and that's kind of a, um, a thread that has persisted through my work. I've been at the high now since 2016, 
and have really kind of shifted my focus to photography of the South. It's not the only thing that we do, but it's one of the most important parts of the collection. And it's also something that's pretty distinctive for the high. There's not too many other museums that focus on all the amazing work that's being made in the South. So even though I'm a a born New Englander and grew up mostly in Chicago (laughs) as an adult, I have, you know, somehow become, you know, an expert and a champion of, of Southern photography. Thank you. Raheem? Yes, it's, it's great to be back on the podcast. Huge fan. So yeah, you know, I grew up in Texas and part of my youth, I also grew up in Oklahoma where my family has very long ties to the land there. My intro to photography was mostly through growing up uh, interested in music and skateboarding. You know, both were cultures that cameras were heavily involved in, you know, documenting different shows or different tricks that were happening. So there was a kind of natural inclination to either be on camera or to operate a camera. And, you know, as I became older, I uh, ended up connecting with a photographer named Eli Reed, who would come into the photo lab where I worked. And he was printing a grant application. And I just was like the eager, you know, person and just like really took it upon myself to like help him through the whole process and make him feel like he was working at like a top quality lab, even though it was like the local spot in, in Texas. And he really uh, showed me a lot about what you could do with the black and white image. And I remember he said this funny thing because he was making some color work and he was like, if they don't think the color work is strong, like I'm going to go tell them to look back at that black and white work and like, no, it's the same person. I, I didn't know much about photography at the time. And just hearing him say that it, it was just it was it's Eli Reed. You know, he's such a, a titan in photography. And that was actually a massive inspiration for me. Ended up moving to New York and studying sociology there at CUNY in lower Manhattan and working in New York and kind of getting this experience of not really like a transplant in New York, but like getting deep into like where native New Yorkers were. So going to the community college and working at this uh, bakery in Gowanus, it really opened my mind to a lot uh, coming from Texas and coming from Oklahoma. When I went to New York in 2016, that was the first time I had gotten on a plane. So, you know, I hadn't traveled too much in, in that sense. And it was just really a huge eye-opening experience. So I would stay in New York, continue to like be interested in photography, start making my own photographs. And yeah, you know, to kind of jump, jump ahead a little bit, you know, I would work as a assistant and uh, intern for many years while making my own work in Texas. As the years have gone by, I've been able to shift to being a full-time artist and, you know, working with collaborators. And yeah, it's been a really great journey, you know, meeting Sasha, meeting Greg, learning from everybody is, you know, it's been a really cool experience. So let's get into, thank you both. Let's get into this exhibition because there's a lot to talk about. And and I want to start with the sort of just nuts and bolts mechanics of putting together a show of this size. So Greg, if you could tell us how big the show is, how it's structured, because I think that's, you know, really integral to the show. And of course, having to give it some structure is key to the viewer's experience of it. So it's not just sort of, you know, images flowing past, but the structure is is really a big part of it. How you work with another curator, how you acquire the work that's in the show. That's sort of behind-the-scenes stuff that a lot of our listeners won't won't know. Sure. So there are 181 photographs in the exhibition, and it takes up about 6,500 square feet of gallery space. So it's a pretty big show. Um, it's structured more or less chronologically. So it begins in the 1840s. I think the earliest picture is kind of dated around 1845. And it goes up until just the last few years, 2019, 2020, I think is the, some of the most recent pictures in the exhibition. 
we structured the show around roughly 25, 30, 40 year chunks of time and often kind of marked by significant events or shifts in mm-hmm. the history of the country. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the show is really a history of the South in photographs mm-hmm. rather than a history of photography in the South. Mm-hmm. Some of it is kind of political events, kind of social rifts, but then also kind of uh, artistic shifts that have happened, you know, as you move later on in that chronology when there really is a, you know, a fine art photography that mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's very clearly coming to fruition. And within those kind of chapters, such as it is, there are kind of themes that are kind of dominant or that we focused on, which I'd really pull out. Can kind you of... give a couple of examples? So in the, the first section is, it focuses on the antebellum period and uh, the Civil War. And so it's, it's a lot about how photography is used in these very early days as a way of articulating identity in, in pictures, often around race and like how we understand race and how people project their, their identity and their status um, in photographs. And then alongside that, how pictures are used as a way of processing trauma and mourning, kind of particularly around you know, the great losses and traumas that happened during, during the Civil War. So this idea of like identity formation and kind of mourning and loss and kind of reconciliation through pictures are kind of like the big theme of that first that first chapter. The final chapter is about renegotiating what it means to be Southern and kind of what is what is the South, what is Southern identity, and kind of asking questions about who gets to tell those stories and who gets to make those those statements. So a lot of it is kind of thinking about throughout the show, like we're always kind of asking like, well, what is the South? And we don't necessarily have a lot of hard and fast answers. It's something that we're trying to figure out in the process of putting together and putting on the exhibition. In terms of working with another curator, so we've been working on this show in one form or another for about five years, and it's evolved in a lot of different ways. And my co-curator, Sarah Kennel, used to be the head of the photography department here at The High, so we were working on it collaboratively here at the, at the museum. And then when she left The High to go to the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond, she was still invested in the project and wanted to continue working on it. So we continued to collaborate, and the show will be traveling to, to Richmond in about a year as well. A lot of the exhibition is drawn from the High's permanent collection. We have around 9,000 photographs, and I would say about a third of those photographs are either by Southern makers or are of Southern subject matter. So that's really the base that we're that we're drawing from. And so we're trying to kind of pull out what are the kind of key images, the key movements, the key photographers to try to build out this this story. And sometimes we want to, you know, hit the like the really well-known pictures of the really well-known makers because this, you know, it is a, a known history. We're not completely rewriting everything. So we're kind of building on something that's familiar for people. But then we also wanted to show some things that maybe would be unexpected or a little bit less well known or go deeper on particular areas where where we can and really try to sort of flesh out that that narrative. And there's peculiarities to it because you know our collection, as large as it is, is not exhaustive. So there's things that we that we don't have. Sometimes we're able to borrow it from other museums. Other times we just decided we can't show everything. We're kind of showing our version of this of this story. Another museum might tell an entirely different story of photography in the South. So this is very much like our our take on on that narrative. I mean one example of a period that everyone's going to sort of know that's going to be very familiar would be like the Great Depression. And it's probably was circling around in your head just now when you were mentioning that, right? Like the Walker Evans, Dorothea Lang. 
mean, it, it's a watershed moment in the history of photography generally, and so many of those most of the most iconic pictures from that period were made in the South. Like Walker Evans' pictures that he did for Let Us Now Praise Famous Men were made in Hale County, Alabama, and that's some of the work that he's most well known for. And I think as a lot of people are getting into photography, that's often some of the work that they're seeing for the first time when they're kind of wrapping their head around like what what is photography? What can I do as a photographer who's kind of going out in the world and kind of responding uh, to the things that that you see? And so that was a, like a hugely important moment in the history of photography, and we wanted to make sure that that was focused on because it's, it's this it's this moment where kind of photography really develops this language of documentary and kind of mm-hmm. how to respond to the world, how to record the world, how to make pictures that look believable, authoritative, that seem to have you know uh, kind of an objective look to them, but also where people are realizing photography can be used as a way to influence people and change people's minds. You know, in this case, ideally for for good for good ends. You know, to kind of you know uplift people from rural poverty and really build an infrastructure for to improve people's lives like you know so there was a form of propaganda of sorts but it was also a way of telling stories and influencing legislature and public opinion yeah no and i I think it's a great point you saying that this is your interpretation on photography in the south because there are endless readings and i guess you know from my end looking at the show and getting a tour from you you know you spoke to not being able to get every piece but there was still something about the show that felt very comprehensive so it didn't feel like this highly curated thing that was you know just um kind of abstractly within your own taste but it's still it still maintained that feeling that it does cover a lot of the images that are very well known and highly um, highly regarded and uh, written about you know the thinking about uh some of the writing of deborah willis and you know her writing about the daguerreotypes and you know learning about these uh, alternate processes that photographers were doing at the kind of beginning of the medium it's such a great launching pad for the show also throughout the show i think that there is in a way kind of a re-engagement with the archive and thinking about the way that the functions of even the fsa images might have changed and how do we grapple with this kind of authoritative voice in the modern moment and kind of standards of aesthetic and i just was really moved by that and that's just the first two walls you know i could go through a range of complex provocative emotion from each uh, section Last night in the talk, I spoke about the impact that the post-war photographs had in the kind of clear changing of aesthetic and this kind of going from this like silent film, if you would, to something that feels more produced in a, in a subtle, very subtle way. And these kind of uh, practitioners who are a bit outside of canon and, you know, like someone like Consuelo Kanaga, if I'm saying the name mm-hmm. correctly, I've always been super interested in her work and um, very fascinated in how this work that is overtly documentary because it is documenting a time and a place and a people who otherwise, you know, left few documents behind, but also the aesthetic choices or are just things that have always been really um, influential to me as an artist. And yeah, you know, as you start to get into the 80s, that work is incredible. Early Hudnall, obviously, Baldwin Lee. So, you know, these are people who have been known, people who are also having new moments. You know, Baldwin's work is just being more widely circulated, but kind of highly regarded and after being known in smaller forms for a while. So, like I said, I think that this show is really important because it's in a way it's a major re-engagement and it's like a reshuffling of the deck of how we think about Southern photography. And I think that's a great kind of launching point with the book and the fact that people who you have writing for the book are people who are, you know, we've been uh, friends for a while and I know some of the writers in the books, like uh, people who are 
all thinking about similar things and after conversations that we've had, I think it's um, just great to see it kind of materialize in something that is also influential for people who are interested in getting into photography and maybe don't know as much as it feels like something a little bit more approachable than maybe it's been in the past. I'm happy to hear you say that because one of the things that we were keeping in the back of our minds as we were putting the show together was, like, you know, can you tell the story of photography in the United States and only use pictures that were made in the South? to do it. And mm-hmm. I think maybe in some ways you can, in other ways you can't. But, you know, the South is so critical to the overall history of photography in America, and yet it's rarely focused on um, in that kind of specific way. And so we wanted to try to like put the South back at the center of the story of American photography. And there's certain things like the Institute of Design was in Chicago, not in the South. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was, you know, a hugely important institution that influenced so many things that happened mm-hmm. in photography. So there's like certain aspects that we can't really touch on with that. But in a lot of ways, like you can tell a pretty comprehensive history of American photography just by looking at what happened in the South and the work that's been made in the South. I want to take us, and we'll get back to sort of where we are now, but I, I don't want to lose this thread that sort of popped up a little bit earlier because I'm really curious uh, your thoughts about this. In the exhibition, which obviously in this way will not translate to the book, but in the exhibition, the object is extremely important. How did you think about that? Because I know for me, walking through yesterday, and we were all together, um, so I could see Michael and Raheem also becoming really taken with the different printing styles, the very early printing styles, and the way in which the photograph was revered as object. You, You saw that often in the way they were presented in sort of uh, elaborate ways, um, the frame and, or the container, the vessel was, was extremely important. How do you think about that when translating to a book, or how do you just think about it in the exhibition? It's an interesting process to work through because a lot of the time when we're putting together the exhibition, we're looking at thumbnails or printouts, mm-hmm. things like that. Like we're not, we, we often will go and like look at the piece in storage, but sometimes they're really big or they're in a box that's, you know, in the back behind mm-hmm. something else. And like not everything is readily accessible. We don't have all, you know, 180 pictures around us. So we're looking at a, we're working mainly with a reproduction of something. Mm-hmm. And then when we get into the the layout phase, we're starting to think about the three-dimensional experience that mm-hmm. someone's going to have moving through the space. And we're also working on the book at the same time. And with the book, you know, we can change the size of, of an object. We can run it across the gutter. We can make it a half page. So they're really images that you're working with. Um, and that's a particular way of telling a story. And it's mm-hmm. very, you know, kind of very linear as you kind of move through the book. There's certain kinds of adjacencies that you can do. But when you're putting together an exhibition, you know, it's something that you experience, you know, in time and, and in space. And the objects have dimensions. They have you know, physical characteristics, which have meaning on their own. And they also change the experience that you have mm-hmm. as, as a viewer. I mean, think about, you know, looking at a daguerreotype in a book, you know, it's ink on paper, but when you actually see a daguerreotype, mm-hmm. it's a mirrored surface. If you move around it, the image kind of disappears. You move again, it pops back That's up. Right. You can see yeah. your own reflection mm-hmm. in the image. You know, they're small. They are meant to be held in your hand. I mean, we're not letting people hold the daguerreotypes <laughs> when they come to see the show. But you we know, tried, you kind of, <laughs> but he said no. <laughs> but you can get that. You can get that sense that this was something that you you had a physical engagement with, mm-hmm. not just you know, you weren't just looking at it. You were holding it in your hand and kind of communing with that image. And then as you move 
further into the exhibition, you know, and as it gets more into the, the contemporary end of the show, the scale shifts. That's like right. the, the pictures become really big, mm-hmm. and like that's a that's an intentional choice. Like you're having, you know, an encounter. It's also a physical encounter. Like you're standing in the presence of of that image. You know, there's a very large portrait by Zora Murph that's a like six feet tall, and so it's a portrait of his father, and he's you know he's almost life size in that image, and you're kind of confronted with that presence, and so that really changes the experience that you have of the image. Like in the book, everything is kind of equalized, and in the show, there's a lot of uh, shifts in scale mm-hmm. that that change the way that you experience the photograph, and that's really important but it's kind of one of the last things that we think about as we're putting right. together the exhibition well i would just say as someone who just was a viewer yesterday that everyone should come down and see the exhibition the book is amazing but the experience i mean we were ooing and i yeah i was just thinking this, i was just thinking the same thing i was like i look at pictures at a lot of the time of you know most days but that is a different experience it is. it's a it's a it's a bodily thing looking at all of those images you know it's a whole yeah it, it's you, like you were saying speaking to the print quality because i think that's so much of what i say mm-hmm. like when, for lack of better words this kind of tangible nature and that you um are engaging with in yeah, a very sensory level Absolutely. you know so you know i'm kind of fumbling through the language to describe it but you know that's that's something that was i was really struck by as i said someone who is familiar with a lot of these works seeing them as the print was just incredible especially a lot of the early vintage works and i'm like i gotta take one more walk through and look at some of those like presentations and choices because i do think about size and the intimacy of the viewing experience and i'm really interested in you know going back through and looking at it more from that from that stance and also i mean when you're in that first room and you're faced with the civil war and you're faced with you know you're looking at pictures of former slaves and you're looking at pictures of black soldiers on the battlefield. And obviously the content is so incredibly moving, but you add to that the all the different processes we were looking at, albumin prints and, and tintypes. There was one cyanotype in there, a lot of daguerreotypes. And you have a sense of the people who were holding that work, the, the people who owned that work, the pe- where it lived in somebody's home, how it might have been an important part of a family's mantelpiece and their history. And knowing that the container, the frame, the worn parts were someone in the 1800s was holding it and probably proud of their son or their husband or whatever. There were beautiful pictures of, of black men dressed beautifully having their portrait taken, like just knowing, you know, that that's something for me yeah. that was extremely visceral. And the quality of those different print processes contributed to the whole experience. So I'm really making a pitch for people to come and experience this in person. Yes. I mean, there's something really interesting about the point you're making, Sasha, while staying here in uh, Atlanta. You know, you just watch cable TV in your hotel room and uh, Spike Lee's Malcolm X was on and mm-hmm. I'm watching Denzel perform as Malcolm X and the film is shot in color. And then they kind of have these uh, sequences at the end that show Malcolm in black and white. And mm-hmm. you're like, he was there in color, you know, and I think about that with right. these images, like mm-hmm. the people who appeared in these images appeared in their time and in their presence. And in a subtle way, it's kind of says something about a very like 
pulled away perspective of just mortality of like, you know, this current moment is actually all we have mm-hmm. and everyone's kind of doing their own jobs to document that. And I think there's also an interesting kind of duality with what you said about these images that are more vernacular photographs and are more kind of totems to people's self-making and mm-hmm. self-image. And, and I've always been extremely interested in the uh, black American relationship to photography and upward mobility and, you know, the creating of self that happens since literally the beginning of the medium. And post-emancipation, the photographs that you begin to see from the first black practitioners are all incredible. And then you get into what then is deemed as art photography. And there's this kind of separation, you know, that happens there. Now these gaps are being bridged and we're engaging with it differently. But I just like really do love to stay a little bit just like critical in how we view these images. Um, They are beautiful photographs, but they also are highly sensationalized. Some of them are made in some questionable nature. So I think that two things can Mm -hmm. be true at once. Mm -hmm. You know, these things are. But so I do think that one thing to keep in mind while, you know, enjoying that and something I'm always kind of trying to remind myself within documentary as a practice is to the investment within the people as people mm-hmm. and not just photographs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, incredible show. Yeah, hats off. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, Raheem, one thing that I noticed yesterday when we were walking through and you just mentioned Consuelo Kananga, but you, your eyes lit up when we got to a photograph um, that she made on the wall and also uh, Marion Palfi. They're next to each other in the exhibition. And you said, now, this is really me now here. Can you talk about that? We'll have those pictures on the episode page on the website so people can see what I'm talking about. Yes. You know, I I, um, am always kind of referencing different images, both especially kind of working in like the uh, fashion context. A lot of the making work is uh, built in this kind of language of image and kind of catalogs of images. And also within making, forming my voice within my personal work as well, there's always this kind of looking at different things and I always talk to students about this kind of like you know the artists that you choose to emulate in some way are your voice like you're you surpass your influences. That's something a lot of like teachers talk about. It's like you find your influences and then you kind of step away from them. And so that was kind of um, those two images particular aesthetically really stood for like things that I'm very interested in. The image on the left shows a woman, she's seated. There's a very hard flash, but the way that it is printed, the highlights are very muted and the shadows fall very dark, which is sometimes a difficult um, visual technique to capture Mm -hmm. well. You know, you can lose a lot of information in the background. The image becomes, so it functioned in this very interesting way. And I have a few photographs that, just you know just made it through enough and you kind of find that magic with the flash technique or a printing technique where the image is just right there on the cusp and Mm -hmm. I I was really interested in that you know because I'm also so interested in the dynamic of when the person made the photograph how many exposures did you take how many times did you flash at this person like what does the other negatives look like Mm -hmm. Um, so there's all these small decisions that go into like this the image that finally arrives on the wall did everyone hear what he just said so many small decisions that go into the image that winds up on the wall. I mean, that's why I wanted you to talk about this because, you know, a lot of people really just don't understand, especially in the style of work where things aren't heavily staged or directed necessarily seemingly, I should say seemingly directed, that for a photographer like you, there's still, you know, what makes you an excellent artist, in my opinion, among a number of things, but I want to just underline the rigor with which the wor- the ultimate image is, is decided upon. A million decisions are made. People who are 
sort of less fluent in this and, and need to learn if they want to get to a point where you're at is that don't just keep moving quickly and think there isn't a decision there somewhere to be made to make the image better. There's always a million decisions that can be made. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm pulling that like kind of idea and framing from Larry Sultan, I believe is who I heard say that in a lecture that mm-hmm. being an artist is making a million decisions in one second. It's where to stand, what camera, all mm-hmm. the various decisions that are made either instinctually or as you kind of begin to really break down the fundamentals as you were talking about earlier with the FSA, like the idea of kind of cracking the code a little bit with the image making and like learning these kind of visual cues that would just uh, kind of objectively make an image work or not or more or less the better way is function yeah I think that that's a, a, a huge point um, and when reading work to look at it in that way sometimes I'll look at someone's work and I'm so fascinated because it's mysterious to me and I think the best work in a way should be like a bit mysterious like you're so curious about how this came to be and me, I start digging away and try to learn how did those things happen and looking into what articles people have done or what has been written about the work. And Consuela Kanaga, her work, she really uses a lot of uh, stark contrast of black and blacks and mm-hmm. whites. I mean, mm-hmm. which is a kind of a cliche for black and white photography, but she she pro- approaches it in a very intentional way with the framing and the, the clothing. Um, maybe it's just the clothing of the time was not like highly patterned, but that's something that has also also always struck to me. And that again, becomes one of those kind of like objective things of function. It's like, well, it's clean, more or less like the images. Or maybe she, let me just, excuse me, I just want to inject, go back to what you were saying earlier. Maybe she asked her sitter not to wear a, a pattern, right? Yeah. She took con- control of, of her photograph. Of- yeah, absolutely. And that's something that, you know, would be uh, just one of the thing, you know, one of the many things that I'm picking up from various artists that's like, okay, I'm noted and, you know, it kind of makes its way into your work. So throughout the show, there were so many moments where I was just humbled and taken aback and like just just a fan and, you know, um, you know, the large print by Christine Potter and, you know, being kind of in a way, I always point out these little things with Greg where, and I always talk about this as an artist. Sometimes somebody tells you something about your work and you're like, yep, that was on purpose. But really it was, you know, you're learning from the, the person's read from it. And I think that that's something you kind of learn about your work as it's in the real world. You know, you can only know so much about it, as you said, when it's a thumbnail and you're kind of conceptualizing, but when you put it up, there's something about it being in real life that you kind of like, ah, you learn from that. If you took out all the walls, Sally Mann's print and Christine's print were like kind of like on opposite sides of the space in a way. And it just felt like just a really like that was just something I would probably pick up. And I just feel like those two works are so in step with each other. And it's just really uh, beautiful to see that, you know, kind of cross generational conversation between artists because we need someone like you to facilitate that. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, can you? Talk a bit about the decision to end the show, not in 2020, that's neither here nor there, whether it was 2020, 2021, 2022, but on this clear concept idea of the new Southerner, because obviously that's really important and key. And was it obvious? You know, how did you get to that? And maybe talk a bit about some of the images that are, you know, give that that feeling at the end of the show. So the very honest answer is that we kind of reverse engineered that because the sh- you know the show comes chronologically and you're just kind of you're kind of following what photographers are are doing and what they're telling you and kind of trying to sort that out and kind of pull out what are the kind of the ideas that are connecting. 
everything. And so some of that just kind of happened by happenstance as we're kind of like arranging arranging the pictures. But then when we're putting them up on the walls, you're, you know, you're trying to create conversations between pictures. And the, the show ends with two almost competing themes. There's one that talks about a lot of the tension and anxiety and anger that exists in contemporary America. And a lot of it is kind of centered in the South, you know, whether that's division around politics or identity, um, how we interpret how we interpret history. Um, so a lot of the pictures kind of deal with that tension. And on the other side, kind of facing those those pictures are images that are of all young people of varying races, ethnicities, gender identities that really are complicating our sense of, you know, who is a Southerner? What is the South? What kind of makes up the culture of the South? Who's writing the culture of the contemporary South, whether that's in pictures or words or films? And we kind of wanted those things to live along alongside one another. So there's, uh, you know, Tommy Ka's self-portrait of him dressed up as, as Elvis, kind of reappropriating this image, uh, you know, of an iconic masculine Southerner in Elvis. And then there's also um, Jose Barra Rizzo's picture of a young uh, Mexican-American couple embracing like out out in nature. And it's like this beautiful bucolic image of kind of connection and affection. And across from that, there's a picture by Alex Harris that was made on a movie set. And it's of a white cop and a black cop shouting at each other. And it's a stage scene. It was, you know, he was filming on a movie set. But it's such a charged image that I think speaks to a lot of the, the tension and anger that exists in the country right now. And the final picture is by Irina Rozovsky. And it's of a young girl sitting at the end of a road that goes into a river that has flooded. And it's it's kind of an ominous picture, but it I think also is a, a picture that seems to have a lot of possibility. It's kind of like you don't we don't know like where where things are going. It's meant to kind of be open ended, you know, like the river could recede, you know, the river could keep rising, you know, <laughs> you know. There's all kinds of ways that 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 story could go, and I think we wanted the show to feel kind of open ended. You know, this is you know the show ends in 2023 because that's when we put it up, but the story of photography in the South is going to keep going. And, you know, someone's going to do another version of this show in 5, 10, 25 years, you know, we, we hope, and tell another version of that of that story. And this will just be, you know, kind of a moment in time. But we wanted to talk about how, how the South is changing in really dramatic ways. And, you know, with earlier in the show, we can kind of look back and we have all of this perspective and all of this time to kind of see like how these things played out. And we don't know how a lot of these things are playing out right now, but it feels like we're living in this moment where everything is up for grabs and you know the 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 culture the country could go in any number of of directions but you feel this sense that there's something in the air that something is happening and we're like we're kind of like at a, you know at a at a pivot point in a lot of ways did you learn anything i mean i'm sure you learned a lot but in doing this show did you was there a particular section time period that you were less familiar with that was a real learning experience for you, which I assume would have been also a really wonderful experience. I know you like to learn like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the, the, the earliest part of the of the exhibition. So my, my work as a curator tends to focus on contemporary photography. I love working with artists and helping them craft their exhibitions and kind of take the pictures that they've made and kind of figure out how to put them out in the world. I'm, you know, less steeped in the early history of photography and I'm kind of conversant in it, but it's not an area that I have a lot of expertise. And I think one of the things that Sarah taught me was, you know, like all of the, like the real, you know, intentionality that went into a lot of these pictures and being able to kind of step back and see like, 
what were photographers and sitters doing at this time? Because in a lot of cases, you know, the, the sitter hired the photographer to make an image. And so it was a really collaborative process about how that portrait was going to be made. And to be able to look at those pictures and kind of see how kind of the, the politics, you know, like the, the social agendas of the time even come through in these, you know, seemingly very humble portraits. You know, it's like from the very first pictures, you can see that, you know, the, the racial hierarchies are inscribed into these pictures. You know, there's, there's pictures of, you know, a, a black enslaved nanny holding a white child, you know, and the child, you know, sensibly, you know, owns or their family owns the person that is holding them in that picture. And there's, there's a lot of power, there's a lot of heartbreak, there's a lot of, you know, anger that I think that that can kind of stir up in you. And then right around the corner, we have a picture of two freed black men that was made in the 1850s. And for them to be able to walk into a studio, you know, and kind of declare the fact that that they exist, that they are important, they are people of consequence, and that they really use photography to make that declaration. I mean, I think, you know, you look at a picture it's like, oh, that's a nice portrait. Those guys are dressed up really well. But to think about like what was going on at that time, you know, the country didn't even acknowledge that that they were citizens, that they were people. But to be able to say, I am a person, and I like I matter, and be able to document that in an image, there's so much power in that. And I think sometimes when I look at pictures like that, I kind of take it for granted. It's like, oh, that's a you know a historic moment, isn't that kind of quaint? You know, look at those hairstyles and the you know the the funny patterns on their pants or something like that. But to really think like what what they were doing with that picture, kind of what is like the like subtle but very powerful gesture that comes through in that image. One of the things that was the most surprising to me and just going with what you're saying was the six images I think by the Massengill family yeah. of this young woman that feels very before its time where she seems to be oh I'll let you describe it yeah so that, that's one of my one of my favorite uh, suites of images in the show suites of photographs in the show um, so they're all of this young woman Evelyn Massengill who married into a family of itinerant photographers that traveled around rural Arkansas in the late 1930s early 1940s and they built these portable studios that were kind of you know reconfigured photo booths essentially so rather than being like an automatic photo booth there was actually you know an operator they would pose people they would you know click a shutter that would take the picture and then it would you know spit out a strip of, of pictures and you get three of them for a dime but between paying clients Evelyn would you know take pictures of herself or have family members take pictures of her and I think there's there's at least 30 of these known portraits we have six of them in the collection but you can see her trying on all mm-hmm. of these different facets of her identity I think she's about 17 when she starts which to of make course these is a very contemporary yeah. concept. She's like she's you know she's becoming a woman and mm-hmm. she's you know kind of figuring out what is her place in the world, what is her role on her own as herself, what is her you know what is her role, what is her identity in relation to other people. So you see her she's in one of them she's got this hat on, she's got tilted at this very jaunty angle and she seems like really cosmopolitan. Mm-hmm. There's another where she's got a double exposure of herself kind of taking on like maybe two sides of her personality. Mm-hmm. But then you also see her posing with her husband or posing with her you know, with her child, you know, she's a mother, she's a, she's a wife, she's a partner. And, you know, there's another where she's wearing, you know, wearing kind of like a nightgown. And so there's That's this kind right, of like, yeah. you know, emerging sense of her own sexuality mm-hmm. in, in the picture too. And you just, it, it's like, it's, it's kind of, it's fascinating to see how she's like using photographs to try on these different aspects yeah, of her, of that herself. That was really like made a strong Im- impression with me as well. It was, these pictures are from the late 30s and, you know, to see someone doing this type of self-portraiture and where some she looks like she's 12 and some she looks like, you know, a fully grown. Yeah, remind me what year those were produced. Between 1937 and 1941. Nice. So that's pre-World War II. 
Yeah, right at, right at the beginning of World War II. So the, the tail end of the of the Depression. It's very fascinating because also thinking about the relationship to World War II and the mailing of portraits is something that's really interesting the, in, the, in the creation of self-portraits. You know, these por- a series of portraits in my family archive of my great-grandmother that were sent to her husband over while he was um, overseas and they were taken by my grandmother. And there's one where she's sitting on a Cadillac. There's one where she's doing her makeup in the mirror. And it's, it's, that shines a light on something that I think is very interesting. And in thinking about how we view these images, again, thinking about the relationship between the people who are in them and the people who are making them. And, you know, going back to what you're saying about the Civil War, I think that it's so interesting thinking about the earliest people kind of, kind of cracking the code I guess even like from the chemistry level of how how uh, intense it was to make photographs at that time. And there was, you know, pretty much I'm saying there was black folks on both sides of the camera. I'm just trying to get that out there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one, one of the earliest pictures in the show is a, is a daguerreotype that was made by J.P. Ball, who was a black photographer uh, working in, in Virginia. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it was so incredible to get to walk through with you guys and, you know spend some time here in Atlanta. It's been a real, real treat. And I highly suggest if you're in the area or you can make it out here, come and see the show. Um, it will be traveling as well. So um, there will be hopefully a, a lot of chances for folks to get out here and, and experience this. And if you can't, of course, get the book. So you contributed, Rahim, an, an essay to the book. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the piece you wrote? And you wrote it with a, a friend of yours, a collaborator. Yes. It's funny. Can I tell the story of how it came to be? Of course. I'm at Perry Photo last year um, and I get a text from Greg. He's like, hey, man, would you like to meet for breakfast? I, w- I want to ask you something. I'm like, oh, OK, okay. <laughs> let's let's do it. So uh, Miranda, my, my girlfriend and I, we meet Aaron and uh, Gregory at a crepe spot and he seemed a little nervous. I was like, what's going on? is everything okay? And he asked me, he's like, we're doing a book. And I'm just curious if you would want to do an essay. I know it, it might be uh, like a, you know, quite the ask, but we would love to have you write. And, you know, I kind of reluctantly say, yeah, yeah. I, would. <laughs> I think what? I also told you that we needed it in like six weeks. So. <laughs> I think there was a bit of a, a time crunch there, but you know, I, I come into the work that I do first as a photographer and as I begin to engage deeply with the history and these kind of conceptual um, ideas around photography, I've gotten more interested in writing. I've always been a little bit uh, more interested in writing, even back to my grade school time, you know, kind of thinking about these large stories and just also enjoying the idea of just putting words on papers, uh, something that can be therapeutic. But when you sit down to write, you know, I always say that it feels sometimes like you're kind of confronted with your own intellect and you have to really kind of stand on these ideas that otherwise you can kind of, you know, in conversation is much different in, than putting it on a piece of paper. Absolutely. And so that is its own um, relationship. And so it can be pretty daunting. You know, I worked with an incredible editor and co-writer, Shakira Smith. She received her PhD at Harvard and we met while working on a project in Louisiana, photographing a small community called Hillaryville that's off the Mississippi River. And so we were working on this project there and she was kind of our point of reference, but also like provided like such a critical resource. She was a good friend of um, the artist who we were working with. He had seen uh, the work of myself and my collaborator, Ade Randall, and he wanted us to come do a small film and a um, series of photographs in his town. And so while we were there, she kind of provided this really incredible resource. And I guess like as a photographer, those people are actually really important, even as the person who drives. So you can get out or look out the window. And I think that that's something that of collaboration within photography that's really important shows us not just one person like in a vacuum making it at times maybe someone is the solo mm-hmm. but a lot of times there's these multiple people who are investing other 
um, facets of their work to result in the image. Definitely. So our conversations around photography and these kind of studies of like restorative histories and visual medicine as being things that actually could be healing, you know, to traumas was like, we, we were right on time, you know, with the way that we were thinking about art in the South. And so when I began writing the essay, I asked her if she would come on to help me edit, kind of help me to be able to just get out what it is that I'm interested in saying in her to kind of help me get it into more of an academic and literary language. So it was a, a strong collaboration for weeks because she's not coming from a photography background. And so all of the ideas are coming from me and she's helping me with these forms and really being a, a, a great addition. And so we work together on, in various uh, facets as far as grant writing and copy editing and so to artists just know you don't have to do it all yourself find yeah, collaborators invest yeah. in other people who great point you know because you you kind of people will show up for you as much as you show up for them and i think that that's important for like building out your community um and resources so yes we we started working on the essay and i was really interested in this idea of the history of photography well this is what gregory was you know we spoke about was kind of my view of history of photography in the south which is the overarching theme of the book and so I started out thinking about this kind of moment in the late 70s where I kind of described it as this post-Civil War, post-Vietnam America, where this kind of this huge call to action and this next generation kind of does not have the same um, kind of tangible things to go photograph in this uh, social realm. That, and that's not true necessarily because there was a lot of photography also happening of the farm working that, you know, that was going on in South Texas. There was a lot of things happening in the valley and this kind of rallying. But it pretty much it's like you're thinking about these timelines lines and you have like someone like a, a Russell Lee who was affiliated with the FSA and him starting his program in UT in the kind of coming of the MFA photography program that was not a thing of the previous generation and then you have people someone like a Danny Lyons who was heavily involved with the politics in Texas as well as civil rights and so this uh, following generation you start to see this kind of settling in of art aesthetics and art as practice and primary function and I feel as though a lot of photographers kind of use the South as a launching pad for finding visual language. I mean, the list goes on. You could think of someone like uh, an Alex Webb or Eugene Richards and a host of other artists who go to the South and kind of use that same tradition and lineage of social engagement to look at the tenement farming and the sharecropping that's going on in the South. And so there's this dual thing that's happening there because I do think that sometimes it's like the good faith coastal person who's like, and I think that that formation and idea is something to be critical of in the way that there's so much virtue, I guess, within photography, in the history of photography, as you've spoken, it's this kind of urge to help and how there is like these kind of biases and how the viewpoint and who the people who are in need of help and how that again goes back into the making of self-image and the image that is viewed by others. So I could go on and on. It's a very, very heavy concept that you kind of start to get into at that, at that intersection of this kind of urge to help in those people who need help and versus self-sustainability. So I was going through these decades. I was really pouring through it with my essay. I took out all references because I was not sending any shots at anybody because that's not why it's not a pointed critique because people made such incredible work, but it's just a re-engagement in a kind of thinking. So it's not to be combative with those people who made that work or to overtly kind of want to tear the whole infrastructure of it down. But it was just my own perspective on the history of photography in the South as kind of learning as a Southerner, you know, as a Black American, as someone who is, um, you know, grew up in 
Oklahoma and, you know, a tribal community and these relationships to photography might not be the same for, you know, myself and other kind of marginalized folks than Mm -hmm. it would be for someone who just like has the extensive family archive or has a different relationship to this kind of rallying in America. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yes, get back to the essay. I apologize. I really (laughs) it's it's a very uh, complex uh, kind of series of ideas we got into. And then we also kind of touched on these ideas of people who were coming from the outside, you know, I think that world post World War II was so massive for that for various reasons, because you had Northern black folks going to the South for forts that could operate throughout the year. This is also at the time of integration of the military, which just completely changed the country, as well as the early 1920s and the teens as the red summer, there's these fever pitch moments. And I often just think about the tumultuous times we're in now and how we think like, wow, it feels like in times I'm like, well, let's open up a history book and look at some of the crazy stuff that's happened in the past. It's a, you know, in a way kind of unfathomable how each of these generations had this really particular set of circumstances that they're working against. Um, and this is just something that, yeah, I, we were speaking about the other day, kind of thinking about the decades, you know, it's like, oh, this, the 40s is, is associated with the World War II, the 70s is associated with Vietnam, there's kind of this the civil war, there's kind of these constant conflicts. And I think in the current moment, that's something that people may continue to reflect on and will also become more present in the work that's being produced now. Again, back to the essay. We started thinking about this. Why I bring up World War II is because as black soldiers start to go overseas, this engagement with black Americans in Europe is changing. And this starts to really change the way that America in the segregated society is viewed. And so America is trying to be this kind of, you know, forerunner in democracy and and freedom and equality. And you still have people who are being treated as second class citizens who are contributing so much to the country. So I could do a whole separate, we could do a whole separate podcast about just looking at uh, the way that World War II changed uh, racial dynamics in America and ultimately led to integration. And so a lot of European photographers would come over and kind of pointedly want to show that America thinks that they're this place of freedom, but let me kind of show what is actually yeah. happening Hypocrisy. here. Yes. And you know, this works like Jakob Holt is a big kind of a person that I often talk about whose work, you know, is a uh, very complex in it's, um, you know, relation and looking at the South. So again, it's just these various viewpoints that I'm extremely interested in. And in the end of the essay, we start to look at two artists, Early Hudnall and Ramel Ross. Early Hudnall is from Houston, Texas, and he's been working there for many decades. He's works at a university and he's um, been photographing Fourth Ward for decades. And he's, you know, makes these very striking black and white photographs of Fourth Ward that are in a major way in conversation with a kind of generation of photographers that's happening around the country. Traveling around the country, you find in these various towns, there was always, you know, a kind of well-known practicing black photographer engaging in this form of community photography. Um, One who really struck me was Don Thompson, who was working in Tulsa, Oklahoma during the 80s. He was photographing Black Wall Street. I feel there's a lot of connections between him and and Early Hudnall. Eli Reed is working at this time. And this I kind of find these visual similarities. These people might not have even been looking at the same work, but it's also in a huge way in step with Kamungay workshops that's happening at the same time in New York City. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of this, you know, there was also the Black Photographer's Annual that was uh, published. Uh, it was kind of this annual publication. Then there was also various Black Photography photo contest. So there's a culture of image making and this idea of black and white poetry, of reshaping the way that we're viewing. And this is also, I guess, an important context 
because this is post-crack epidemic and post-integration. Like the this idea of community photography is is very different than mm-hmm. what it was in this time where there was this more self-sustaining uh, community and more connected fibers of pre-gentrified Black communities. So his work is a huge marker to that. The other artist is Ramel Ross, who is uh, most known for a, a body of work created in uh, Hell County, Alabama, where he produced a series of photographs in a film that was um, highly awarded and, you know, really was kind of like a a real like watershed moment for experimental documentary. Mm -hmm. And so I was really interested in how his photographs and his film function so differently. His film is mostly shot on kind of more lo-fi cameras. It seems as though the camera is just rolling and he really is allowing the subject matter to just play out in front of him. He was also teaching in the town where he was living for a long time. So he had a really strong connection to the community and the youth of this place, which I think is also really beautiful to come in as a kind of, you know, adult and to be able to invest in people. Just that energy is, it it is very helpful. And I find that even just in being a photographer, a journalist, there is a thing of just being, showing up for people and Mm -hmm. being there. And that comes through strong in his work. And his photographs are not what I would expect of seeing the video. It's extremely candid. It's extremely loose. You know, he works primarily with color eight by 10, which is a very pricey and very slow medium, but it also has these huge tiebacks to the region with the artist William Christenberry, who is known for his 8x10 color photographs. And so he really kind of pushes up against some of these ideas we have about documentary while also kind of agreeing to some of the terms that, you know, that are set in the, the tripod, the big camera, this kind of collaboration. But, you know, rather than engaging in kind of direct formal portraits, he makes these very nuanced images that often show people kind of askewed from the camera or abstracted. And I think, you know, the way I was describing it um, in my conversation with Gregory last night is I feel as though those images are very bold in their attempt. They didn't rely on the roadmap too, particularly. And Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in in seeing the new languages of documentary. And I think that he was a a really great example. So we tie the essay off by kind of looking at these two artists and how there is this new moment in photography where a lot of the value is kind of placed on the interconnectedness to the images and being more interested in the closeness in relation to the subject matter. And I think this is a, you know, a theme that has gone on for a a long time. And, you know, as we start to see more of like family work, someone like an Emmett Gowan or, you know, John Gossage, who's making work just about your your lived experience, not going outside of that realm to make work. I think that it's um, something I'm really excited about. And I, hopefully my work, you know, speaks to those same qualities. Well, I think that's a lovely place to wrap up. Thank you both so much for your time. Gregory Harris, Raheem Fortune, it's really been so wonderful to spend time with you both over the past couple of days and, and to do this together this morning. So thank you. Thanks for having us, Sasha. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is a production of the Photo Work Foundation. Executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and the associate producer is Taylor Selsback. The show is also produced and edited by me, Michael Chauvin-Dalton of Real Photo Show. Music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show and wish to find out more about the foundation, please visit photowork.foundation and be sure to subscribe and review with all the stars on your listening platform.